I really don't know why I did it. Um, for me, I've always been, you know, I'm a child of the late 60s, early 70s. That's the let it all hang out generation. I've never been one to primp or to fuss. I've never been a clothes horse. I've never even been one to work hard on my appearance because after all, what's the point? But about 20 years ago, I did something really foolish. Um, my, the person who was cutting my hair, my barber, uh, as my hair began to thin, I would watch as the hair fell on the floor and I'd look in the mirror and see the receding hairline and, the, and when he turned me around with the mirror, I could see the bald spot on the back of my head. So I just started as kind of a joke saying to him, can you pick up the hair on the floor and tape it back on somehow? And he said to me, you know, I used to be out in Hollywood. He said, I used to do hair for the stars and a lot of pro athletes. He said, I did hair pieces and weaves for some of the most famous people in the country. And he said, yeah, I can do that for you. He was serious. I was joking. He was serious. He said, hey, I can do that. And I don't know exactly why I began wearing a hairpiece. It just kind of started that way. I don't know. Maybe it was curiosity. I'm guessing it was a midlife thing. Back in the 80s and 90s, we used to hear a lot about guys, especially going through a midlife crisis. Now, we've heard so much of that term, it's almost passe now. But in the 80s and 90s, it was really chic. And there were stories about guys who were leaving their wives and chasing younger women, sometimes walking away from careers and doing wild and crazy things. And everybody was talking about midlife crisis, midlife crisis. Well, I was in my early 30s when that started coming out. And I used to joke with the audience back at the old location. I used to stand on the stage and say, hey, I'm going to milk this midlife crisis for all it's worth. I'm not leaving my wife. But I would always say this. And if, all of, if there are any of you, and there are a few of you who were here 25 years ago, 30 years ago, I used to say, I'm going to come home with the reddest hot sports car you can imagine. I'm just really going to use this midlife crisis thing. But when I got into those you know, early 40s, 40, 41, 42, I didn't have a red hot sports car. And I really believe, or were any of you deprived of something in life and you utilized that as an explanation for something crazy? Because the car I had at that time was nowhere close to being a red hot sports car. Let me just take too much time and tell you how I got it. For 12 years, I did a conference every year in, in a church in, in Texas. And to be honest with you, just being blunt, the church was older and extremely wealthy. You would have known it when you pulled into the parking lot because the parking lot was filled with high-end luxury cars. The pastor drove a Rolls-Royce. It was given to him, but he drove a Rolls-Royce. And I still remember the year, I think this is probably about 1990, he had said to me during the conference, hey, I'm going to bring my Rolls-Royce on Sunday and we'll all go out to, to lunch. Well, I'd never even seen, a, I mean, I guess I'd seen a picture of one. I'd certainly never ridden in one. So he brings this teal-colored Rolls-Royce to church on Sunday morning. And after I preach, he, he and I get, he's driving. I get in the front seat. Mary Alice and the boys are in the back seat. And we take off driving toward the restaurant. <laughs> and I shouldn't laugh about this. But this horrible thunderstorm came up. Clouds were green, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there were these huge hailstones, and I was watching them bounce off the hood of that Rolls Royce, and as I turned to look at the pastor, he was about the same color as his car. <laughs> That's when you just don't say anything. <laughs> but I remember there was an old, older couple in the church, and this again, you have to understand, this was back in the mid-90s. There was an older couple in the church that had this Lincoln Town car, and you know Texans just do things differently. And this town car had been, uh, this Lincoln had been one of those cars that a dealership in Dallas had put in their showroom. You know the kind they put on the turntable that turns around with all the lights. And, and of course, the manufacturer and the dealer are trying to show all the cool things they can do with a particular model. And that's what happened with this particular Lincoln. I mean, it had a padded roof, gold badging. It was the top of the line. <clears throat> I found out later 
It had an amazing sound system. There was even a subwoofer built into the back seat. That's not uncommon now, but it was pretty strange in the 1990s. Well, I'll tell you all that for a reason. Because when I would pull into the services at night to speak, this couple would often be getting out of their car. And I knew it belonged to the wife, and she only drove about 3,000 miles a year. So I used to joke with them. i say, hey, if you ever decide to get rid of this car, hey, I'll buy it from you. I mean, you know, it was pretty, pretty fancy looking, this silver Lincoln you know, with the padded roof and the gold badging, beautiful silver color. And so I had said, if you ever, and I wouldn't, I didn't really want the car. It's just, I was trying to be friendly. I was trying to be nice. But after a few years, he called me on the phone one day and said, hey, we're getting a new Lincoln. And if you want this car, we would love for you to have it. And the price he quoted for me was so good, I couldn't pass it up. I mean, it only had a handful of miles on it. And so I can't remember exactly how I got to Fort Worth that day. I think I drove down with a missionary in his car. But I wound up getting to Fort Worth really late, and, and so it was like 10 o'clock at night, and I bought the car, gave them the check, took the car. In those days, my mom and dad still lived in Fort Worth. I didn't want to drive home. So I stayed the night with them. But when I got up the next morning, my dad and I were walking out to the car for me to get ready to leave, and I suddenly looked at the car and said, Dad, that car is Lavender. See, I'd only seen it at night. It looked silver under the lights. <laughs> Suddenly I realized I have this lavender Lincoln town car with a padded vinyl roof and gold batching. Now that'll do something for your midlife years. It'll challenge your manhood too, let me just tell you guys. So here I am, 40 years old, and I'd said I was going to come home with a red-hot sports car, but instead, I have a lavender Lincoln owned by one of those Texas ladies with big hair. I can say that I'm a Texan. But I need to tell you, I didn't make a very good candidate. Now, this is my opportunity for a disclaimer, because I understand there are a lot of reasons for wearing a wig, and a lot of them are good. Some of them are medical, even. And on top of that, there are people here probably that, that do a good job with it. And so, I, I'm not, trust me, I'm not making fun. I have huge respect for you. This is my experience. I want to tell you about what I learned about dealing with something in my life that wasn't real. So again, this has nothing to do about wigs other than it just sort of tells you how I learned the lessons. So for a few moments, I want to do a message called the hair piece. And, and here's the thing, just as a premise, there are some problems living with something that's phony. And that's true in your life and my life. Our series has been called Free to Be Me. And I want you to feel that. That is my heart. That is my desire. I guess I just spent too many years in religion, so much so that I want you to feel that freedom to be who you are. I want you, I want you to get up in the morning and be comfortable in your own skin, to be comfortable about who you are in Jesus Christ, and to really feel that you're living life unrestricted or unconstrained. But the thing that you and I need to understand is that the only way we can be free is to be me. The only way we can be free is to be authentic, the real person. And I've spent a lot of times, I'm 60 years old, I've been pastoring for 40 years, and I've spent a lot of time talking to people. And oftentimes when I meet people, I go away and I feel sad for them because they're often wonderful people, but you never really get to know the real person. I remember when I was, <clears throat> when I was starting in speech, um, and I was blessed by God, and I was very successful. But back in the early 70s, when I would go to these tournaments and deliver a debate or an oratory, I would try to mimic the voices of the anchormen on national television. And I had this deep anchorman voice. And I still remember when my debate coach pulled me aside one day and said, Mark, you don't need to have somebody else's 
You don't need to have somebody else's voice. You have a nice voice. And guys, I want to say that to you today, not in a voice context necessarily. You don't need to be somebody else. You need to be who you are, know who you are in Jesus Christ, and deal with anything in your life that's not real. Well, why would we ever think about doing something that isn't real? I think there are a couple of reasons, and I shared them with you in week one. It isn't long in life before you learn that people who are attractive, people who are smart, people who are charismatic, people who are powerful, get what they want out of life. But we understand the places where we're not smart, not charismatic, not powerful, and maybe not beautiful. And what we say to ourselves is something like this. We may never articulate it really, but it's there in the groundwater of our life. We begin to say, unless I present myself as beautiful, unless I present myself as smart, unless I present myself as powerful, then I won't get those things. And that's when we begin to craft a facade. We begin to be partially someone we're not. And we have the attitude, I'm going to have to communicate that I know more than I do, or I'm better than I am, or I don't have issues that I really have. And even we may not intend to do it, but the outcome is we have something fake in our lives. Do you know what's interesting about this? And I'm just, just shooting straight with you this morning. You know who I'm most concerned about here today? I'm concerned about those of you who grew up in religion. You know, every once in a while, I'll have someone who's been in church for 40 years, and they'll, they'll watch how people come to faith here at New Spring. It's like, well, I, I don't know about that person. They just came to faith in six weeks ago. And oftentimes, I'm, may, I'm way more worried about that person who's been in church 40 years, far more worried. Because what I've discovered is I've met a lot of people who consider themselves Christians, and all they've learned is church culture. All they've learned is church lingo. And often I'm terrified because as I hear them, I, I realize they basically have no idea who really Jesus Christ is. And so it is for all of us today, but especially those people who have gotten the culture down, that I want to bring this talk. See, in Jesus' day, Jesus was most concerned about a group called the Pharisees, which is kind of interesting because the Pharisees were the most religious people in his day. These were the people that their theology was sound, but their lifestyles were phony. There was this big gap between what they said they believed and how they lived. Now, that's true for all of us. But they pretended that they really lived up to those standards. And here's what Jesus had to say to them. Watch this. He said, you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. Look at this. First wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and the outside will become clean too. So my challenge before you today is to talk about how we can deal with who we really are instead of putting all of our energy into the facade and into the image. Now, I want to give you real quickly five things I learned about living with something phony from my hairpiece. And here's the first one, and there's no getting around this, and there's no genteel way of saying it. It was dead. I never got away from the fact that I had something dead sitting on top of my head. <laughs> it didn't grow. It didn't respond to the instructions of my DNA genetic code in regard to color or hair pattern, it was just dead, sitting up on top of my head, waiting for somebody to make it look alive. Now, here's the thing that all of us need to deal with. Fake things are dead, they don't grow, they don't revitalize themselves. I'd like to do this in my life, and I want to challenge you to do it in your life. We need to do some serious analysis of what is real in our lives and what is image. Because here's the thing. What is image in your life is fake. It will not grow organically. 
This is why sometimes you see someone and they never seem to grow. You know, they're just as immature at 60 as they were when they were 20. It's because that person is all image. That person is all hairpiece. It's dead. Nothing grows. Now think about this conversely. You probably know somebody in your life who's truly authentic. I mean, she, she's real. She tells you what she thinks. She's, you, you never get someone else. You always get her. I mean, this person is authentic. And if you go listen to her, you know she's going to tell you the truth. And you know that you're hearing the real scoop when you talk to her. What you'll find interesting about that person, just watch this. What you'll find interesting about that person is they're always growing. I, I thought about the people in my life who were truly authentic. And you know, you could see them at 65 and see them at 70. And yet at 70, they had grown substantially from where they were when they're 65. Because see, God made us to be organic. Fake stuff is dead. Dead stuff doesn't grow. So any kind of fakeness in our life, any kind of inauthenticity, we need to understand it's not going to grow. We're going to have to put a lot of image into styling it and keeping it looking alive. Now, the second lesson I learned is the one that was most painful for me back in those two years when I wore the hairpiece. And this is this. Anything fake will eventually own you. See, here's the deal. We begin to fake things because it feels convenient. Faking seems to be a shortcut to getting what we really want, whether it's telling a lie, whether it's being deceptive, whether it's being inauthentic in any sense. And so we, we do it because it feels like, wow, if I, if I fake this, then I'm going to get what I want. But here's the, here's the real discovery. Ultimately, whatever you fake will own you. How many of us remember growing up with parents who said, tell the truth because if you tell the truth, you won't have to remember what you said? Yep. Well, there's a reason for that. Because the moment you tell a lie, the lie begins to own you. The moment you begin to present a lie, the lie will eventually own you. I wish they could learn this in Washington, D.C. Because politicians are always getting in trouble. And what is the line we learn from Watergate? It's not the crime, it's the cover-up. And what happens, and you saw this for those of you who were around back during Watergate, if Nixon had just simply come out at the beginning and said, some of my guys did something really dirty and here's what they did and I'm owning it, he would have served out his full second term. But no, he had to cover it up. And eventually that cover-up owned him. You know, I, this, this is history. I don't, I don't preach history. I, I just, but every once in a while I think about it. There was another president a few years before Nixon who also had a scandal on his hands. His name was John F. Kennedy. And in the first year of his administration, there was a horrible scandal with something called the Bay of Pigs. There was a plan set up by the CIA to use Cuban exiles to invade Cuba and to dethrone Fidel Castro, and Kennedy signed on to it. But it turned out to be an awful thing, and the United States was caught in the middle, and they didn't really step forward and take ownership of it, and they left these exiles to die on the beach, and it was a horrible thing. But John F. Kennedy went on television, and he didn't blame anybody else. He just basically said, I am the president. The responsibility lies with me. It is my fault. You know what happened? His poll numbers went up. In fact, John F. Kennedy would tell his younger brother Bobby, hey, this is some job. The more I screw up, the more they love me. Well, he was just kidding, of course. But he was just saying, I discovered something. Tell the truth. Because any kind of falsehood will own you. You know, I'm not sure exactly why I wore the hairpiece. I guess it was the premise of having my hair all back. And I thought, well, that sounds great. You know, I get my hair all back. I had no idea what it was going to actually be. What happened is he wound up shaving part of my hair, took some of the hair that I actually had away, and glued it down in the back, and it was taped in the front with double-sided tape. I mean, I promise you, 
it, 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 see, it was no problem as long as I was in a controlled, air-conditioned, quiet setting. It, it could be all styled up and look great as long as I was inside. See, I would go visit his shop. He would open his shop on Sunday mornings before church. He would style it up real nice. I would come out here and speak, and it looked fantastic as long as we were in this kind of environment. But we live in a place called Kansas. And Kansas is not a good place to wear a hairpiece. You're going to have to be trusting me on that. I remember when I first talked about this almost 20 years ago, everybody was, you know, of course, this was 20 years ago. So I used an expression that a lot of you are too young to understand. But I would just say, because the front part was taped up, the back part was always secure. But because the front part was taped down, there were interesting times when my hair would pop a wheelie. Now, most of you are too young to... Uh, to to know what that means. And just so that the young people will learn something today, it means like when a motorcyclist would gun it and the front wheel would go up. So, um, but the one I remember the most was I was at a funeral. And, um, and we were, it was a graveside part of the service. And I don't know how much you've ever observed of this, but a pastor has a responsibility at the graveside. He goes to the back of the hearse with the pallbearers, and when the a uh, funeral director opens the hearse and the, the pallbearers take the casket. The pastor really leads a procession. Very solemn, sacred thing as you're carrying someone's final remains to their resting place. And so a pastor is to lead that procession all the way to the tent. So here I am carrying my Bible like a pastor does with all the dignity associated with my role. And while everybody is watching this procession, all of a sudden I felt a wind gust and I felt, I felt it turn loose. Now, you old people who remember the Westerns where there was quick draw, I promise you, it was the fastest thing in the world that I ever did. <laughs> I don't know what the people at that funeral thought. I don't want to know what they thought. I just wanted to get through as fast as I can. But here's the thing. Subtly, that fake thing began to dictate what I could do and what I couldn't do. You know, I've seen commercials since then for hair pieces, and, and there's this thing. It says you can even swim in it. Whoever wrote that was demented. <laughs> Maybe demon-possessed. I'm promising you. There's a lot of stuff you just shouldn't do in a hair piece. And there were days when I would leave the house and think, what can I do, what can I not do? Now, I've written this sentence, and I want to read it to make sure I get, get it through to all of us. I was portraying an image that wasn't real, and in order to keep that image going, I had to accept its terms. If there is any part of your life that's not real, it owns you. Now, see, you got into it because you thought it was going to give you something. But you quickly discovered that now it owns you. And it's beginning to dictate what you can do and can't do. How many of you would love to tell the truth about something? You would love to come clean about something, but you've gone too far into the lie. When I was in the eighth grade... My grades in math were really good. And so toward um, the middle part of the second semester, my teacher came to me and she said, there are like three of you that are going to be invited to take algebra early. When you went to, in those days, when you went to high school, ninth grade, you take algebra one and two. And she said, you're actually going to be able to take algebra one in middle school. And then when you go to high school, you'll take algebra two and three. Well, that was a great idea, and I was excited about it, but the problem was we had a lot of productions that year that our middle school was putting on, and I was engaged in all of them, and they kept pulling me out of math class to go be part of these rehearsals, and I missed the fundamentals. 
Well, when I got to high school, you know, it's a huge high school, like 4,000 students, and you were really nobody. You had a number, and your number wasn't very important. But I was sitting there with the counselor, and the counselor looked at my record, and she said, well, I see you're going to algebra two and three. You must really be one of the smart kids. Now, that was my opportunity to say, you know what, I really need to go back and take algebra one. But I, my ego was at stake. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Now I found myself taking Algebra 2. I didn't know Algebra 1. And I love school. I love school. love college. love teaching. I've always loved school. But the only year that was torturous was the ninth grade because I had to pretend I knew something I didn't know. I'm 60 years old, and I still have nightmares about ninth grade algebra. How many of us are like that? We're too deep into the lie, we think. And yet, on the other hand, coming clean it's what we really want to do more than anything else. Here's the third lesson I learned. I'll give it to you real fast. It's hard to mesh the fake with the real. See, here's the thing. For all of us who have anything fake in our lives, we're not all fake. In fact, we could be 90% real. But the challenge is in, is in blending the fake in with the real. See, that's what, that's what my hairstylist had to tell me. He had to say, now, here's what we're going to do with this thing. And he was really a pro at it. He said, you know, here's the hair piece, and here's your real hair. And the way to sell this thing is to comb the hair piece in with your rear, real hair so it looks real. Now, all of us have a gap between our standard, if you're a Christ follower, the word of God, and how we really live. And as long as we're honest about the gap, that's not hypocrisy. But the problem is when we start using the real part of our life to sell the fake part. And that's what I learned. The challenge is in blending them together. I think that's what David had in mind when he said, God, examine me and know my mind. Test me and know all my worries. Look at this line. Make sure I'm not going the, look at the word wrong there. Make sure I'm not going the wrong way. Lead me on the path that has always been right. The Hebrew word there for wrong is an interesting word. It means to make like you would make a clay pot. In fact, that's the actual word. Clay pots were worthless in those days. So what David is saying is, God, look at my heart. See if there's any part that I've made. If there's any part that I've counterfeited, look and make sure that I'm right. Now, this fourth point is Mary Alice's favorite point in the sermon, and I'm glad she's not in the room right now. But here is the fourth point. Those close to us see the deception best. Now, it was only a few hours after I got the hairpiece seated on my head that I wished I'd never done it. But I promise you, the most difficult thing about those two years that I wore the hairpiece was dealing with Mary Alice because Mary Alice absolutely hated it. She called it that thing. In fact, she would say to me after a while, you know, I can't look at your face when I talk to you anymore because when I see your face, I see that thing. She absolutely hated it. In fact, I was talking to her in between the services last night. She said, tell them about the day that I opened the drawer and I saw the spare and it freaked me out and I screamed. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not going to tell them about that. And I didn't tell you everything. Uh, see, here's the thing. If there's something fake in your life, as long as there's distance, people may believe it. But the people up close, they're going to see the hypocrisy. And you know what? The people that you can't afford to see the hypocrisy are those that are up close. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter about how public 
sees you. What matters is those who know you, how they see you. I grew up a pastor's kid. And I have a sympathy for pastor's kids. I was one, I've raised three. It's, it's a weird existence. And just at the risk of being personal here, I was not the most spiritual kid growing up. If it had not been for something in my dad, I hate to think about where I would be today. Because I tend to be a little bit on the skeptical side. Faith doesn't come easy for me. I've always told you that. My dad was one of those people that if it was in the Bible, it was true. If God said it, it was true. He just had that kind of faith. Me, on the other hand, my whole life has been put the evidence on the table. Now, thankfully, I stayed around long enough to explore and to examine those truths. And as I did, they began to make sense to me. And God's Holy Spirit began to convict me that his word was true. But I came more through the evidentiary side. But the one thing that kept me around long enough to get to that place, and there's no way of saying this otherwise, my dad was the real deal. If something was true at church, it was true at home. If something was right at church, it was right at home. If something was wrong at church, it was wrong at home. Never did my dad say to me, you're a pastor's kid. You need to set an example for the other kids in the church. My dad was always about being real. You know what's interesting? In times of doubt, I can remember as a child praying and saying, I wish I had faith like dad's faith. I wish I, I remember praying when I was a kid, I wish I could believe like my dad believed. Hey, you know what? You have to be pretty real for your kid to say that. And I think about that because I know my personality. I know my skepticism. I know how obsessive I am about things. If, if I had not followed Jesus, I would have gone hard the other direction. Whatever I do, I do a full bore, 100%. But I'm thankful that my dad was real. See, I have friends that are my age today who were pastor's kids that you couldn't get into church with a gun today. I have friends who were pastor's kids who were rock-ribbed atheists. You know why? Because the churches thought the pastor was the greatest guy in the world, but at home he was somebody totally different. And today, even though those people are still my friends, you couldn't get them into church for anything. There's, <laughs> there's no pastor in the world who is treated more kindly than you treat me. I don't know of any pastor in the world who receives more affection than you show to me. But what difference would it make if you thought I was a great husband, a great pastor, and Mary Alice thought I was a lousy husband? What difference would it make if my sermons go all around the world, but my sons think I'm a phony? See, this is the problem with hypocrisy. And I'm talking to dads and moms. I'm talking to husbands and wives. I'm talking to all of us here today. You can sell the hypocrisy to the public at large, but the people who are closest to you will spot the deception. Now, the fifth lesson and the final one that I want to give to you today is for all of us who want to come clean and be honest but think, how can I gradually get out of this deception and be authentic? Well, I've got bad news for you. First, I have bad news and then good news. The bad news is you can't ease out a phony. 
I mean, that's the thing, is there's no gradual way to get out of phony. Now, the problem that I had with the hairpiece was I didn't know how to get rid of it. Because, A, now I have this dead thing sitting on my head. A good part of the hair that's there has been shaved off in this weird pattern. It's been glued down, so you can't really pull it loose from the hair that's there. Because if you did, it's like the movie says, there will be blood. And then, um, you know, and then on top of that, how do you explain it? See, when I started wearing the hairpiece, we were at the old location, and we had about five or 600 people. By the time I wanted to get rid of it, we had about 1,100 people here, so there were a whole bunch of people who had never seen me without it. And actually, the guy who did it was so skillful that a lot of people that knew me didn't even know I wore a hairpiece. So how do I get rid of it? I still remember the day I'd finished the sermon, we had the prayer, and I asked everybody just to stay right where you are. And I, I was one of the most nervous moments of my life. I walked down those stairs. We had a communion table. I found it in the back of the building today. We had a communion table sitting right here. And I think I, I walked to hold. I just wanted to hold on to something hard and steady to tell the audience. We only had one Sunday morning service then. And I can remember saying, folks, I need to let you know something. I've worn a hairpiece for the last two weeks. And next week when you come, I won't have it on. And you know me. I said, I'm going to preach a message to you called The Case of the Missing Hairpiece. <laughs> I did not know it, but one of my best friends in this city, Tom Macy, who pastored First Evangelical Free Church for many years, Tom was up in the balcony. It was the end of his sabbatical. He would tell me this later. He heard me make that announcement. Now, it was time for him to go back to First E Free, but he went to his board and said, fellas, I need one more week off. Because Tom said, I had to come see you and hear that message. What I learned is there's no way to ease out of phoning. You know, that's the thing. There's only one thing to do, and that's come clean. And I want to ask you to do that for, for your sake and for the people that love you. And, and, and so that you can be free to be who you are. Because it's that inauthenticity that's binding you up. And the more more faith that's in your life, the more bound up you are. I want you to be free. I mean, come to the place where you can say, indefinitely, I want to make a real clear point. I'm not saying this is my sin, God, this is who I am. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Sin is what you do. I'm talking about what you are. We live in an age today where people sin and they accept it as an identity. That would be, I don't think people understand what a horrific thing that would be to do. To have continual sin in our lives and say, this is who I am, that would be basically saying, I want to go to hell. But I'm talking about having the freedom to say, this is who I am. I am who God made me to be. And I'm comfortable being who God made me to be. And I'm going to tell the truth and live the truth. Now, the thing about it is, as I just said, you, you, you can't ease into that. That's a decision that you make. But I want to give you a couple of powerful reasons why you should do that today. And the first one is this. It, to, it doesn't matter how people see us. It matters how God sees us. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is talking to this religious group, and he says four things to them. He said, look, when you do your good stuff, don't do it in order to get people's attention because he said, when you get that attention, you'll have all your reward. He said, do the good stuff that you do in secret, and your Father in heaven, which sees you, will reward you openly. He said, when you give to the poor, don't give to the poor and sound a trumpet in front of you so everybody will know you're doing it. He said, give in secret, and your Father in heaven, which sees in secret, will reward you openly. 
And he said, when you pray, don't stand in the corner and pray out loud in the street so that everybody will hear you praying and think, wow, that person's really spiritual. Jesus said, go into your closet, and your Father in heaven, which sees you in secret, will reward you openly. And he said, when you fast, don't chalk up your face and look sad so that everybody will say, oh, how spiritual she is. She must be fasting. Jesus said, look, put on your best. Put on your makeup if you're a lady. He didn't say that really. I'm just extrapolating that. But Jesus is saying, just, just look like everything's normal. And your Father in heaven, which sees in secret, will reward you openly. Now, what's Jesus saying? This is huge. To God. You are only what you are in private. See, there are a lot of people that feel like, and even when it comes to sin, hey, what happens in private stays in private. Like, you know, you've seen the commercial, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's not true unless you lose money there. Because that money you lost will stay in Vegas. People tell me about how glitzy and glamorous Las Vegas is. And I always tell them, that's there because people lost money, not made money. That's for another sermon. But there's the feeling that a lot of Christians have. What happens in private stays in private. What happens in public, that really matters. Do we understand that if we feel like we can sin in private and it doesn't matter, that is basically throwing up the finger to God? Because basically what that's saying is, God, what matters is what happens in public. But when, I, when I'm in private, I can, I can do pretty much whatever I want to do. I mean, that is flipping God off. And nobody ever flips God off and wins. And Jesus is saying, you do understand that you are to God what you are in private. And no more. Basically, what he's saying is God looks past the facade and he sees us. So that, for me, that's a compelling reason for me to come clean and be authentic today. But in case that sounds painful to anybody, could I just remind you that God loves you like you are? God knows you. He knows everything about you. I mean, why would we ever be, want to be inauthentic to God? I'll tell you something. In fact, I'd never told anybody but Mary Alice this until last night at the 4 o'clock service. Mary Alice's mom died in March. And um, Mary Alice had been down to Texas back and forth taking care of her. When my mom, mother-in-law got sick, she was exhausted from that. And then she came back home, and we thought my mother-in-law was going to live for a while, but then she passed away kind of suddenly. And I can still remember we got the word that my mother-in-law had died, and Mary Alice and I were just sitting in our living room looking at each other. We didn't say anything. I could tell she was wondering what to do. Funeral was going to be more than a week away. I was going to preach, and, and she just had all the feelings that she had, and all of a sudden, I said, let's just go to Texas. Let's not tell anybody we're there. Let's just go to Texas. Let's just go to Fort Worth. That's our hometown. And we did. We, we went to Fort Worth and found a hotel downtown by the museum district, the arts district, where we used to frequent when we were children. And we just kind of lived there for a few days with no pressure just to try to heal. And while we were there, I got to do something I almost never get to do. I got to attend a worship service. Usually when I travel on a Sunday or a weekend, I'm speaking somewhere. I never really get to go to a worship service and just, just participate. And we went to one of the churches I respect most in America, one of America's largest churches. We went on a Saturday night, Saturday night service, and we walked in. Pastor had a great message. Worship team is globally known. They were fantastic. 
And we were walking, like you will in a minute, we, we were walking out of the worship center into the foyer, to the concourse. And I was pretty exhausted. I got to tell you at that point, just all the emotion and stress of what was happening, I was pretty, pretty exhausted. And as I walked out, there was a young lady. And I should tell you, when people tell me God told, me, told them to tell me something, I usually run as fast as I can from that person. But there have been a couple of occasions, two or three occasions in my life where I really, I really knew it was truth. Beautiful, young, African-American woman, early 20s. She walked over to me almost kind of sheepishly. I could tell she was reluctant. I was a total stranger. But she walked over to me and very quietly and kindly and almost shyly, she said, Sir, could I tell you something? She said, I feel like God has spoken to me to give you a message. And she said, God told me that you were a man of great accomplishment. But he told me to tell you, he doesn't love you for those accomplishments. He loves you because of who you are. Amen. The safest place for you to be authentic is with the God who loves you just like you are. You don't have to put on for God. You don't have to tape anything dead on. You're safe being who you are. And if you will come to him and be authentic, that part of you that is organic that God placed there will begin to grow and develop, and the person that grows will be so much better than any image you can craft. And it won't have the toxic, destroying effect that being inauthentic has on the people that are most dear to you. May God help you and me so that all of us can say, thank God I am free to be me. God bless you. That's the end of the series.